the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Thanks for downloading the December 2014 podcast. This month we'll have an update on the Ebola crisis from a research and volunteer perspective. People see the hospital or the health centres as a place where we die, not a place where we cure. How to avoid getting food poisoning over your Christmas dinner. For humans, only 100 cells, which is a tiny dose, gives you the severe diarrhoea. And we take a look back at some of the highlights of 2014 in our online festive calendar. The Ebola outbreak in West Africa this year has rapidly become the deadliest occurrence since the disease was discovered nearly 40 years ago. It has now killed more people than all other Ebola outbreaks combined, with the confirmed death toll in Liberia, Sierra Leone and Guinea fast approaching 7,000. However, the World Health Organization fears that the unreported numbers could be even higher. We spoke to Carl Blanchett, an expert in humanitarian disasters, for a perspective on how the countries are responding to the outbreak, and to Olivier Le Poulain, who has been volunteering with Save the Children in Liberia. My name is Carl Blanchet. I'm a lecturer at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and I work on health systems research and health services management research. So when a disease like Ebola strikes countries like Liberia, Sierra Leone, how does the health system respond? How do you respond to an outbreak like this? I mean, we have to imagine that uh, that the Ebola response is put a lot of pressure on the on the current health system. We are talking about that requires that we work at the community level, at the community care centres, in health facilities, in Ebola treatment centres. We have to set up labs, and we have to put in place a governance system. All of these may be very new and we may create a parallel system to the existing health system. So the Ebola response is already very complex and very new for all these countries. And we're talking about three fragile states, Liberia, Sierra Leone, that both experience uh, civil war, and Guinea-Conakry, that experience political instability. So, and these health systems, before the Ebola crisis, before the, the outbreak, were already fragile health systems, where mortality rates were very, very high, and Sierra Leone, the maternal mortality is the highest, were the highest in the world before the Ebola response, where the availability of professionals var, was very uh, limited. So the, 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 the number of professionals in these countries was very, very, very limited before the Ebola response. What happened during the outbreak is that uh, we collected some figures on the utilization of services during the outbreak between May and, and July, and we, we noticed a drop by 30% of maternal services, a drop by 40% of the number of deliveries. And you can imagine the lack of trust existing in the existing in the, in the, in the current, uh, current health system in Sierra Leone, Labea, and Guinea-Conakry, where actually people had difficulty to access services before the before the outbreak. There was a lack of trust because quality of care was very poor before the outbreak. And now people see the hospital or the health centers as a place where we die, not a place where we cure. So. 
what is going to happen now is that we have to rebuild the trust in the system, and that's going to be very challenging for all the actors currently working in Sierra Leone in, in, in West Africa. My name is Olivier Le Poulain. I'm a public health physician epidemiologist, uh, currently doing my PhD here at LSHGM. Just come back from uh, Liberia, where I was working with Save the Children, providing some uh, input in the setup of the health information systems of community care centres. Describe to me what these community care centres are. What, what are they like and what are they for? So those community care centres are small, smaller centres than Ebola treatment units. I mean, the main concept of community care centres is to isolate patients quicker. So that uh, they're not either, either being cared for at home by relatives and so reduce the onward transmission in the community or that people travel over long distances for long hours and wait until the late stages of disease to actually seek care in Ebola treatment units, which are sometimes much further away from homes. And the key word is community. Are members of the community involved in, in treating patients and caring for people in these centres? Yes, community members are being involved also in the building of those centres. So it's local contractors, uh, local community members uh, helping out with the building of those centres. So from the start, the, the very, very much it was to involve communities. In some centres, the, the option was to go for caretakers for, of patients, so either a close member, a close family member or another relative looking after a patient while in the community care centre. And, and so there's, there's very much involvement of a community. So in terms of what you've seen in the health system basically falling apart in the response, what impact has that had on people? I mean, you mentioned the impact on, on women in childbirth. Has that been reflected in increased numbers of women dying? Are other tropical diseases going untreated? We have information which is very anecdotal for the moment. There's not a lot of data on, on the health system and many people are currently uh, collecting data to measure the impact of the outbreak on the health system. We have many, many stories of, of women who are trying to deliver in health centres and trying to identify a health centre where they could feel safe and a few stories, very sad stories, where actually um, the women could not deliver in, in a health facility and, and, and died. We're talking about, as well, July and August, where you were in the malaria season and where access to prophylaxis and malaria services was very, very limited, where people could not trust any more health centres and preferred to stay at home rather than going to try to get access to these kind of services. We do not have any figure, but we can expect that the impact of the outbreak on the health system in terms of mobility and mortality is going to be huge. From your perspective, when you visited Liberia and the, the things you saw and the, the sense you got of how the country is responding to the outbreak and whether things are changing either in a, a good or a bad direction, where do you think things are now? When I arrived in Liberia, things were changing in terms of the epidemiology. Uh, in most areas, trends were plateauing, and I think it was early days in, in, at that time to actually know whether that was a real plateau or decline in the number of cases, or whether it was perhaps some sort of artifact. There were several theories going on, but it seemed to be a real decline in the number of cases. I think there's still questions as to why that decline happened, and so dramatically as well. It's probably a combination of factors. 
certainly some behavior change in the community, perhaps the scale up of Ebola treatment facilities as well with more bed space available. The trends now in the last few weeks have continued to decline in most areas in Liberia, so that's good news. Clearly, we behavior change and, and, and behavioral aspects in the community are visible. When you're out there, you, you won't see people shaking hands. You will have Ebola uh, awareness messages when uh, you call people or, over the phone. Any, any call will start with uh, a message saying Ebola is real and what to do to prevent Ebola. Uh, you will have uh, various sort of awareness messages displayed everywhere. And so that's, that's certainly contributed to, 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 to increase the awareness in the community. Now there's a risk of complacency, of course. I've heard that in the last weeks things were changing because the message out there was that perhaps Ebola was uh, disappearing. And so there's a risk of things to kick off again if we're not vigilant enough. And in terms of the survival from the disease, uh, thanks to the Ebola treatment centres, the community care centres, are more people actually surviving the disease than was expected? The data seem to show that there's a reduction in the case fatality ratio. That's more people uh, recently have been surviving compared to the early at the start of the epidemic um, in, in various uh, Ebola treatment units. The exact reason why that's, that's sort of driven that decline in case fatality ratio is, I think, unclear yet at this stage. It remains that the case fatality ratio is around perhaps 60 or 70 percent in most areas, so six out of six or seven out of ten patients will still die. That was Carl Blanchett and Olivier Lepoulin, and you can hear an extended version of that interview by visiting the school website at lshtm.ac.uk. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Campylobacter jejuni is the leading cause of food poisoning, being three times more common than salmonella. A recent report has claimed evidence of contamination of over half of UK's fresh chickens sold in UK supermarkets. Brendan Wren, who is Professor of Microbial Pathogenesis at the school, told us more about the bacteria and how to avoid food poisoning this Christmas. Campylobacter jejuni is a bacterium and you, it causes food poisoning, severe gastroenteritis. So it's a simple bacterium and it causes uh, severe bloody diarrhoea and it goes on for a long time. And I'm talking from personal experience here, having had the, an infection quite a few years ago um, and uh, I know many people have and I think this is part of the issue because it's actually uh, uh, highly prevalent. It's getting worse and worse it seems. There's 70,000 cases reported a year, so these are confirmed di- diagnostics, uh, and that's only thought to be one in ten, so the incidence is probably over half a million. In the UK? or In the UK, Europe? every year. Uh, in the US, it's about two and a half million a year. Why is that? I, th- I think it's partly th- the way in which we produce food nowadays. Uh, the, the organism is, grows an optimum temperature of 42 degrees rather than 37 and 42 degrees is the body temperature of avian species, so it's elegantly adapted to the crop or the gut of, of chickens and, and other avian species. Uh, and it's probably been there for over a billion years, so it quite happily lives there in huge numbers, you know, 100 trillion uh, per gram. And uh, it doesn't cause disease, overt disease, in, in birds. However, for humans, uh, only 100 cells, which is a tiny dose, gives you the severe diarrhoea. By contrast, salmonella, you'd use 10,000 cells. So this is one of the features of the organism. Uh, It's amplified quite readily within birds. 
um, and the way we produce birds and the fact we eat more chicken has produced a perfect amplification vehicle for the organism to, to multiply um, and it gets into the food chain uh, and, and, and that explains why there's a high incidence of food poisoning. So what are successful or potential control methods? So preventing it is difficult. Uh, in the home, my advice, everybody's heard about the advice about cooking meat properly. That's true. But the other thing about Campylobacter is it's actually a weedy organism. It dies in the air. It doesn't grow in the air. And it dies at, at, at relatively high temperature. So the, the main problem I, I see is actually the handling of food in the kitchen uh, and storing of food. So that, that's where people need to be careful. Is there any correlation, or do you see um, an increase in sort of incidence around this time of the year, just considering that people are eating turkey more? Uh, no, you don't actually, but you do see it in the spring peak, and it's very distinct. Every single year that records have been done, uh, around Easter time, you get this huge peak, um, and then you get a second peak later on in the summer. Uh, again, this is one of the things that we're trying to investigate. Uh, with the University of Liverpool and we, we've been looking longitudinal study for many years so we're interested but we're sequencing strains to see is there a genetic determinant is there a certain strain that comes along every um, every Easter um, and there are lots of theories as to why that might be uh, maybe the barbecue season um, but uh, but there is a slight rise over Christmas but it's not as dramatic as the fact, you know, suddenly people are stuffing their faces with turkey. People eat other things as well. And back at the farm, what can, you know, rivers do in terms of how they treat chicks or chickens? I, I think p part of the difficulty is because Campylobacter doesn't kill chickens, uh, there's been a, a lack of incentive really mm -hmm. for industry and perhaps farmers to really uh, eradicate the organism and, and that's why I, I personally found it disgraceful we've been allowed to grow uh, and, and it, you know it's recently been shown uh, two-thirds of the flocks are contaminated uh, two-thirds of uh, it doesn't matter which supermarket you go into whether it's 68 percent which is the lowest or 72 percent it doesn't matter which one uh, you know two and three are contaminated uh, so uh, another area of work that we're very keen on is to produce um, a cheap poultry vaccine. Um, and the way we're doing this is there's evidence to reduce food poisoning uh, through uh, many years ago. There was the, uh, the egg scare, Edwina curry, and shortly after that, a salmonella vaccine was introduced into chicks. And the incidence of salmonella food poisoning shot down to about fifth the amount it was. Uh, so we, it seems obvious, really. We want to do this for Campylobacter. We know how to do it, but it has to be cheap, otherwise farmers and the industry wouldn't take it up. So our plan is to piggyback it onto the existing salmonella vaccine using some of the uh, what we call uh, glycoengineering technology that we developed at the London School, and we use it for many different vaccines for humans. And now we'd like to uh, do this for to protect chicks not just against salmonella and campylobacter, but a third disease that they can get, necrotitis enteritis, caused by clostridium perfringens, that does kill uh, chicks. So we do a triple or three for one vaccine uh, at low cost, and, and this should um, really make sure that the industry will use that, and, and ultimately uh, the incidence should uh, go down. That was Professor Brendan Wren. 
In terms of public health and disease, 2014 will naturally be remembered for the Ebola outbreak, and the role that researchers at the school have played has been immense. But there has been plenty of other news, events, research, public exhibitions and trawls through our archives that we can be proud of during the last 12 months. And some of those have been chosen in our online festive calendar that you can access by visiting at lshtm.ac.uk forward slash festive calendar. Here's a special audio version of some of those highlights. So, the first question of today is how many different diseases are transmitted in human stool? So, raise your collars, please. Well, everybody decided? Good. The yellow ones are right, so please... It's at least 50 different diseases. On the first day of Christmas, my true love at the collection of preserved specimens sent to me a vampire that preserved in a jar. Ooh, what have we got here? How can you make sanitation available to those billions of people that have little money and no toilet at the moment? The work that I'm looking at is using a fly larvae to basically recycle the human fecal sludge. They consume the waste and what's left over is a residue that can be used as a fertilizer, but also the larvae are high in fat and protein, so they can be used to create animal feed and even biodiesel using the fats that's in the larvae. Mmm, this looks tasty. Ministry of Food, Christmas Recipes, December 1945. Mock cream, two level tablespoons of custard powder or corn flour, half a pint of milk, one ounce of margarine, one ounce of sugar, flavoring. Blend the custard powder with a little cold milk. Warm the rest of the milk in the saucepan. Add it to the custard powder and return to the pan. Stir over heat till well cooked. Put aside to cool. Cream margarine and sugar together very well. Beat in the thick custard, add flavoring, and continue to beat till creamy. This makes about half a pint of cream similar in texture to whipped cream. I think I'll listen to this. The epidemic in West Africa is the 25th known outbreak of Ebola infection. In 1976, I was in training in clinical microbiology. I just finished medical school. And one day in September, we received blood samples from a Belgian nun in what was then called Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of Congo, who had died with a clinical diagnosis of yellow fever. So we did the usual things for, you know, how to isolate the virus in the old days. And to our big surprise, what came out of it was a virus that didn't look at all at anything we knew. Under the electron microscope, it uh, looked more like a worm, but then, of course, much smaller. So we sent the virus to CDC in Atlanta, Centers for Disease Control, who confirmed that this was a, a new virus. To be honest, I didn't fully realize how important all this would become. Of course, it's, uh, I was thrilled, I mean, it's 27 years, you know, it's kind of uh, the ultimate kick for a, a clinical microbiologist to discover new pathogens. But it was particularly, for me, the kind of detective work unraveling how this virus was transmitted, how it was spreading. That was 
a uh, extremely exciting time. It's only uh, later on that I realized that uh, you know I, I was making history, uh, to use a big word. On the second day of Christmas, my true love at the collection of preserved specimens sent to me a dermatitis causing Saturnid. This is a good one. Have a listen. Ministry of Food, Christmas Recipes, December 1945. Mock marzipan. One tablespoon of water, one ounce of margarine, one teaspoon of ratafia or almond essence, two ounces of sugar or syrup, two ounces of soya flour. Melt margarine in water, add essence and sugar, then soya flour. Turn onto a board and knead well. Oh, I remember this one. The key thing about the exhibition is that it is showing the development of prevention treatment. So what I've tried to do is trying to show some of the initial reactions before AIDS was properly defined. I think the things which I find particularly interesting are some of the sort of related ephemera. So we have this amazing set of comic trading cards made in 1993 by Eclipse Comics, which basically it's like 111 cards with all this kind of encyclopedic knowledge of AIDS, so you've got celebrities who've had AIDS or sort of the institutions involved in AIDS, like uh, the gay men's health crisis and stuff like that, and they're actually incredibly informative. Unfortunately, the company went bust sort of like soon after, but in terms of sort of archival material, it's brilliant. On the fourth day of Christmas, my true love at the collection of preserved specimens sent to me a flesh-following parasitic guinea worm. What's behind this door? Um, there is one glittering, sparkling exhibit amongst (laughs) all the papers and the posters. Yes, so this is the red ribbon pendant. So the red ribbon symbol was basically created in 1991 by a New York artist consensus, So, and that was the first symbol uh, for a disease. And what we have is the English artist Andrew Logan's basically homage to the symbol. He created this pendant to remember the friends he lost to the disease. And, yeah, it's this brilliantly sort of sparkly red metal pendant. You have to see it to believe it. On the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love of the collection of preserved specimens sent to me. Human hair infested with head lice, more vampire bats, an engorged female heart tick of the genus Andromeda, a death walker scorpion, a skelm, which is native Dutch for rascal, an edible queen termite, a feces transmitted toxicara roundworm, five more vampire bats preserved in a jar, a flesh borrowing parasitic guinea worm, warble fly lava in skin of reindeer, dermatitis causing saturnia, and a vampire bat preserved in a jar. As always, you can hear extended interviews and watch videos of all our podcast stories over the year by visiting us online, lshtm.ac.uk. Thanks for listening, have a great holiday and see you in 2015.